0: Listen to the Anarchist Wool This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are, the Anarchist Wool This Week. We're back. That's right, we're back. Don't be afraid. There's a lot of things to be afraid of, but not the anarchist world this week. We wonder what anarchy is all about. Anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power. It's a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. Very conservative concepts, aren't they? You know, society is there basically for the benefit of the people in that community, irrespective of their... Sexual orientation, their race, their age, the colour of their skin, the language they speak Extraordinarily simple concepts about universal human values Not just in terms of so-called freedoms which we can exercise or not not exercise But in terms of having the freedom to live in a secure, safe environment Yes, simple concepts So if you're interested in these simple concepts, keep listening to the Anarchist World this week. If you're not, move on. Life's too short to waste your time listening to me. There are a lot of things to do in the world. You don't have to listen to the Anarchist World this week, obviously. It's a voluntary activity. It's a private vice. You know, you can enjoy in the privacy of your bedroom. All right, let's move on. Now, what I love about living in Australia is that historical amnesia is such... An important component, such an important component of our society. It is in our DNA. To be an Australian is to have the historical amnesia genotype inserted in our DNA. And I love Anzac Day. And I love Anzac Day because it highlights the essential role that historical amnesia plays not just in terms in terms of who we are and how we as a people, we as a nation, react to things. I mean, obviously, the first big historical amnesia occurred in 1788 and continues to occur. I mean, we conveniently forget that this society was based on rape, murder, plunder, dispossession. We forget it. And it's only in the last 30 years or so that it has become an issue. Not a major issue, but an issue bubbling in the background where people are beginning to understand that you know, a few people begin to understand the truth about the land of Oz, the Great South Land, the land down under. But sometimes you need historical amnesia to actually justify crimes that are too horrendous to even contemplate. And this historical amnesia actually is goes to the very basis of who we are. That's the first big lie, a lie which we, as a people, carry with us. Then the next big lie is World War One. Now every Anzac Day and every time some politician needs a little bit of airplay or needs to make a comment on TV or on print media. We've got this almost universal universal historical amnesia regarding World War One. I. I mean we're told it's the nation it's the moment we became a nation when the earth was soaked with the blood of Australians. And somehow that made Australia a nation. And if you look at the historical records, and they're not hard to find, Australia was a divided nation during World War one, a bitterly divided nation. World War I, when over twenty five million people died, was not a war based on freedom, or liberty, or equality, fraternity. World War I was a dirty little trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet for the nation state. That's what World War I was. Nothing else. Nothing about nation building. It wasn't about nation building. Men were sacrificed in their tens of thousands in one day in that struggle to improve the bottom line of nation states. That's all it was. And in Australia, over 420,000 men volunteered to take part in the carnage. 62,000 died on the battlefield. Another 60,000 died within 10 years of returning to this country of their war wounds. And countless... Countless personal atrocities occurred, and familial atrocities occurred because of the damage which was inflicted on human beings during World War One. Who came back to this nation, then were expected to pick up the pick and shovel. Just extraordinary, really extraordinary. And World War One, this country was so divided. We had mass rallies of over a hundred thousand people in the city of Melbourne. Protested against the conscription referendums which were held in 1916 and 1917. Both defeated by the Australian people. Defeated, plebiscites, both defeated by the Australian people. And why was the Billy Hughes-led government forced to hold plebiscites regarding conscription? Because there was so much resistance in the streets of this country that he feared an all out strike and civil war. And the plebiscite was one way to dampen the anger. And this year in October, we will be marking the hundredth anniversary of what is arguably the most one of the most important days in the history of this nation. And that's when Australians stood up and said, enough is enough. We will not allow our sons to be slaughtered on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. We will not allow it. No one else will mark that day, but we will mark that day. For If it wasn't for the anti-conscription movement, which consisted of a ragtag army of, you know, trade unionists, radical activists, anarchists, members of the industrial workers of the world, church groups. It's no exaggeration to say that another 60,000 young Australian men would have been sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. So historical amnesia continues to play a central role in our society because it is important to those who exert authority, those who wield power to create myths that have nothing to do with reality which ultimately ultimately bind the Australian people to them. And that's what this myth-making is about. It's not some historical reminiscences. These are important moments in this country's history which are diluted, changed, for the benefit of those who wield power today because it's important to them that this country's history of resistance, whether it was the resistance of indigenous people, the resistance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to the invasion of lands they had inhabited for over 40,000 years, which in many cases meant the destruction, the wholesale destructions of tens of thousands of people, or whether it was the resistance of people during the anti-conscription drive during World War One, who did not want their sons to be sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. Or whether it was the resistance of the trade union movement, the emerging trade union movement, which banded workers together to collectively ensure that most of what we take for granted today whether it's a minimum wage, whether it's conditions at work, whether it's sick pay, whether it's holiday pay, whether it's overtime payments, whether it's work cover, that all these conditions became part of our everyday reality. And it is no exaggeration to say that that myth-making continues today. A myth-making based on the fact. The trade unions are basically criminal organisations which are not there to protect the interests of members but are there to fill the pockets of their leadership. This myth-making is central to the Type of society we have become today and it is essential that as radical activists we tell the truth because telling the truth is ultimately a revolutionary act you know what our eyes and our ears and our mouths tell us is reality that's the reality we need to speak about The reality that it wasn't for radical activists taking the lead and in many cases paying a huge price for their activism, if it wasn't those Eureka rebels, if it wasn't those men and women who were involved in the creation of the trade union movement, if it wasn't for those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who resisted the colonisation process, a brutal process, if it wasn't for those men and women who fought against conscription during World War I, if it wasn't those men and women who fought against participation in the Vietnam War, if it wasn't for people like that, this country would not be what it is today. It would not be a land that other people want to come to it would not be that today because ultimately what we are today what we enjoy today or what's left of what we enjoy today let's let's be realistic because the last 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatization revolution, we have seen not only the gains of the past rolled back, but we have seen the very people who are involved in those gains being denigrated, ostracised, marginalised, written out of the pages of this country's history. Because they don't want people like you people who are willing to think outside the box, people who are willing to stop clicking on the net, people who are willing to read between the lines, people who are willing to express their opinions, they don't want you to work together, to work collectively, to mobilise, because historically, when people like you mobilise, work together, work collectively, change occurs, reform and radical change occurs. And after 40 years, 40 years of marching in an economic, social, cultural cul-de-sac, a desert, 40 years of marching in this deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation desert. It's time that we struck out because enough is enough. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3 CR. .org.au All right, let's talk about a day which basically has been consigned to the dustbin of history. A day which still, to a small percentage of the population, a shrinking percentage of the population means something. May Day. That's right. May Day. The facts. And unfortunately... Just like most other things, historical analysis these days, the facts are never really discussed. The history of May Day, the 1st of May, both internationally and in Australia, is interlinked with the history of the anarchist movement. Let's not forget that. It's interlinked. To a large degree, it is a day which was created by those at the very margins of society. A day of international struggle. In 1884, at a conference of the Federated Trades and Labor Unions of the United States and Canada, which was held in the United States, the conference... Of the delegates, the delegates at the conference decided to launch an intensive campaign for an eight-hour working day that would accumulate in widespread struggles on the 1st of May 1886. So there was a two-year lead-up for the first May Day march on the 1st of May 1886, and the goals were very clear. It was about launching an intensive campaign for an eight-hour working day. Demonstrations were held across the United States and Canada on the 1st of May 1886. In Chicago, just one city, over 30,000 workers went on strike. And over 80,000 took part in demonstrations to mark the struggle for the 8-hour day. 2 days later, on the 3rd of May, striking workers met outside the McCormick Harvesting Machinery Company. Chicago police and private investigators from Pinkington fired on the workers, killing 4 and wounding many others. Chicago anarchists organised a protest meeting at Haymarket Square for the next evening. The rally was non-violent. As the rally was breaking up, police charged the demonstrators. We're talking about a few hundred demonstrators and hundreds of police. Someone threw a bomb at the police lines killing one police officer. The police panicked, firing indiscriminately into the crowd and at each other. Seven police and four demonstrators were killed and over 100 police and demonstrators were wounded. Eight prominent Chicago anarchists were rounded up and charged with conspiracy to commit murder, although only three, Albert Parsons, August Spies, and Samuel Fielden had spoken at the rally. All eight. And it's important we name them today, 130 years later. All eight. Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fieldin, Michael Swab, Oscar Nebe, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Lewis Sling were found guilty. Seven sentenced to death, and one Oscar Niebuhr. To fifteen years imprisonment. August Spies, George Engel, Adolf Fisher, and Abbott Parsons were hanged on the eleventh of November eighteen eighty seven. Lewis Ling committed suicide the night before, and Fielding's and Schwab's sentences were commuted to life in prison. All eight men were victims of the wives spread hysteria, whipped up by the Chicago yellow press, the gutter press. It was later proven all eight men had nothing to do with the bombing, and those executed and those imprisoned received a full pardon. And I'll say it again. It was later proven all eight men had nothing to do with the bombing, and those executed and those imprisoned received a full pardon. In Australia, on the 1st of May, 1886, brothers David and William Andrade, heeding the call of the Federated Trades and Labour Unions of the United States and Canada, launched the Melbourne Anarchist Club, Australia's first Anarchist organization launched one hundred and thirty years ago today on the first of May. Three years later, on the fourteenth of july eighteen eighty nine, the International Labour Conference, the second international, decided to make the first of May a great day of international demonstration. An Australian delegate, John Norton from Sydney, attended the conference. On behalf of the Australian trade union movement. The members of the Melbourne Anarchist Club celebrated the first of may eighteen eighty seven and eighteen eighty eight with a number of public meetings and lectures. May Day was celebrated in Victoria in the offices of Dr. William Maloney, who became the later became the Radical Member for the Federal Seat of Melbourne in 1819 and 1891. William Maloney was in Parliament for over 40 years. Those of you who think that the Greens, Mr Adam Banth's winning in Melbourne is something new, it's not. William Maloney held that seat for over 40 years. The first Australian May Day celebrations and demonstrations—remember, these are not demonstrations; these are celebrations—were held in Barcaldine and Ipswich at the sh- height of the sh- shearers' strike in 1891. Over a thousand people took part. Six hundred shearers were mounted on horseback. The procession was led by four strike leaders wearing blue sashes. Because remember, during the 1891 Shearer strike, st- strike leaders were actually being jailed daily. The Oddfellows Band was followed by the banner of the Australian Labor Federation. The Eureka flag was carried by some participants during the first May Day march in Barcaldon in 1891. In 1893, moves were made in Queensland to have the eight-hour day celebrated on the 1st of May instead of March. And Queensland is one of the few states in the Federation which continues to have a public holiday on the 1st of May to mark May Day. Unlike Victoria, where there is no public holiday for May Day, and the traditional labour movement celebrates May Day on the first Sunday after the 1st of May. In 1892 a public celebration was held at the Arab Bank in Melbourne to mark May Day the meeting was chaired by well-known Melbourne anarchist Chummy Fleming who's remembered whose name who's, who's still remembered in Carlton a small lane off Argyle Place Chummy Lane is named after that well-known activist Chummy Fleming the meeting was preceded by a march which began at the Will's Monument, which was led by men carrying two huge red flags. In 1893, Chummy Fleming called a meeting of radical delegates from across Melbourne to organise future May Day celebration. Chummy Fleming was involved in every May Day celebration in Melbourne until his death in 1950. His ashes were scattered on the Arab Bank on May Day the following year, 1951. As I said before, Chummy Place in Carlton still bears his name. So every seven years, the 1st of May falls on a Sunday. And in 2006, the 1st of May falls on a Sunday. On the 130th anniversary of the foundation of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, Australia's first anarchist organisation, May Day falls on a Sunday. We traditionally celebrate May Day on the 1st of May. We normally don't participate in the May Day celebrations on the first Sunday after the 1st of May. But this year, we will celebrate together. On Sunday the 1st of May, we encourage anarchists, reformists, radicals, to assemble at 2pm at Federation Square, corner of Flinders Street and, say, Kilda Road. Then at 12.30pm, march to Trades Hall, Victoria Street, Carlton to join the official May Day march. That's right, to join the official May Day march to mark the 130th anniversary of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, Australia's first anarchist organisation. The history of anarchism and May Day in Melbourne is intrinsically interlinked. If you want more information, go to the website anarchismedia.org. There's a wonderful poster up on the website which you can download and send to your friends and your enemies, highlighting what we will be doing this Sunday on the 1st of May in Melbourne to celebrate the 150th. 30th anniversary of the Australian anarchist movement. And there's a great picture of Chummy Fleming, an original picture of Chummy Fleming in the late 1890s distributing champagne. You like that? Distributing champagne to the unemployed. Because marvellous Melbourne in the 1880s became became nasty Melbourne in the 1890s when 10% of women were involved in prostitution to survive. When baby farmers, you know, uh, uh, people who looked theoretically looked after the children of uh, women involved in prostitution, who basically used to smother them and bury them in the backyards of the Melbourne CBD. You know, were rife. The time when people were starving in the streets of Melbourne. The time when the unemployment struggle became so intense that the uh, state government concerned about possible revolution opened up the Dandenongs and provided three land to any unemployed person who would go up to the Dandenongs and clear five acres and camp on that acres to remove the unemployed from the streets of Melbourne. So Chummy Fleming, he was a member of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, a radical activist. One day, as Lord Hopeton, the governor of Victoria, was trundling along in his carriage, jumped up on the uh, sideboard and harangued the governor about the unemployed and the plight of the unemployed and starvation, prostitution, and the list went on and on. And the governor, being taken aback by this gentleman, Mr Fleming, said he would do what he could to help. And he sent six cases of champagne. That's right. So, the irony is unbelievable. Six cases of champagne. to Mr Fleming's boot shop, boot-making shop in Ligon Street because Chummy Fleming was a bootmaker. And there are pictures of thousands of people lining up to receive a bottle of champagne. There's only about 70 bottles, obviously, 70 or 80 bottles. Quite an extraordinary site. But unfortunately... Chummy Fleming wasn't as powerful as Jesus Christ, and he actually wasn't able to feed the multitudes with champagne. But it's a fascinating image. So, if you want to get the poster, download it from the website. If you can't download it from the website, if you are, uh, send us, say, oh, what, maybe $10, $20 stamps. Send us $10 stamps in the mail to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. 3052 post office box 20 parkville 3052 and we'll send you a post a3 color poster you can put up on your wall great but it actually basically advertises the may day march which we'll be having assembling at 12 o'clock sunday the 1st of may in uh, federation square at the uh, we'll be assembling at the corner of uh, swanson street and st kilda road then uh, the older members will be catching a free tram down swanson street down to the end of Swanson, where Swanson Street meets Victoria Parade. Us younger folk will be obviously marching down Swanson Street. Then we'll go up Victoria Street to uh, join the main May Day march at Trades Hall. And let's not forget that Melbourne Trades Hall, built in 1854, or comm- commencement of building in 1854, is the longest, oldest, continually used Trades Hall in the world followed by the Ballarat Trade Hall, which was built, I think, in 1884. So, a great day every seven years. So, uh, join us. Now, let's move on. Let's move on to more pedestrian things, you know. We've talked about historical amnesia, the history of May. let's talk about more pedestrian things like the election. Now, if you've been following the Toscano for Dunkley campaign... And it's based on the concept of making the 1% pay 1%. And if you're wondering where Dunkley is, well, the electorate of Dunkley has been a Liberal-held electorate for the last 20 years, and the retiring member, Mr Bruce Bildson, it's actually in the kind of south of the Melbourne metropolitan region. It uh, incorporates the suburbs of Seaford, Frankston North, Langwarren, Frankston, Langwarren South, Frankston South, little bits of Baxter and Sky, Mount Eliza and Mornington. It's a great electorate in terms of, it's a microcosm of Australian society. You've got some of the most poorest people in the country, living in the same electorate in this 105 square kilometre electorate as some of the richest people in the country on Oliver's Hill. People are very familiar with Negative Gearing, obviously. So why? Why Dunkley and why am I staying as a candidate? Look, if you're going to support me because you think I'm going to win the election, I'm not, all right? It's that simple. We are there to raise ideas which are not being raised by the major political parties. The changes in the Senate voting uh, processes, whether it's a double dissolution election or not, and most likely there will be a double dissolution election on the 2nd of July, make it impossible for micro-parties, especially independents, to actually get a Guernsey in the Senate unless they've got a huge profile, which is unusual for a radical activist to have because, obviously, you don't want to give radical activists any oxygen, do you? So, as you know, we've been trying to form a new political party, public interest before corporate interest, not because we think you know it's all about parliamentary politics, but because we need to mobilise people around ideas, which force the 1% to pay their way. Because those of you who are constant listeners of the program will listen to me carry on, you know, vociferously and consistently and week after week about the fact that the main reason, the very reason, there's never enough money for public education or public health or public infrastructure and the list goes on and on, or public housing there's never any money because in a budget of 400 billion dollars you find that the majority of that income comes from pay as you earn taxpayers over 300 billion comes from pay as you earn taxpayers because corporate australia pays voluntary taxation you've got great corporate citizens like Chevron paying $258 tax you've got great corporate citizens by like Mr Murdoch and News Corporation receiving $886 million tax refund in 2013 just conveniently just after the federal election and when Mr Hockey was a now the ambassador of the United States of America was asked to comment he said no comment So we need mechanisms via which to ensure the 1% pay 1%. So the Toscano for Dunkley campaign is based on the simple concept of making the 1% pay 1%. You know I've got many views on many issues. But for this election campaign, this is what the campaign is about. Because if we wish to address the growing inequalities in this country, if we wish to address the problems faced by the 33% of Australians who rely on social security benefits to survive, if we wish to address the shortcomings in the public education sector, if we wish to address the shortcomings in terms of public health services, delivery to the people of this country. If we wish to address the problem of homelessness and the inability of so many Australians not to be able to purchase a roof over their head during a lifetime of work. If we wish to address the problem of the working poor, people who work their butts off, 50, 60, 70 hours a week who don't take enough pay home to meet their financial commitments. If we wish to address the problem of the exploitation of workers in this country, whether on four, five, seven visas or not, if we wish to address the problem of diminishing return for effort in this country, if we wish to address the problems which are created by laws which legally allow corporations to pay no tax, if we wish to address the problems created by negative gearing, if we wish to address the problems which are created by governments that have criminalised trade union Activists and have almost made trade union membership a criminal activity who wanted to pass legislation which would give trade unionists less rights than drug dealers. If you wish to address these issues, we need to find ways via which we can make the corporate sector cough up. Because remember... The corporate sector benefits by the fact that we have a relatively peaceful country with minimal violence in this country. Obviously, if you're the victim of violence, you know, it's different. But in terms of generally, the level of violence in this country is less than most other nation states. So if we wish to address these issues, we need to find new ways, new ways... Of making the one percent pay their fair share of tax, I'm not asking for an arm and a leg. We're asking for one simple thing: make the one percent pay one percent, and we can actually increase government revenue from 450 billion to 550 billion, an increase of over 30 percent by introducing four simple pieces of legislation in Parliament. I'm not talking about civil war. I'm not talking about violent revolution. I'm not talking about mass street processes, protests. I'm not talking about occupations. What I'm talking about is simple pieces of legislation which could be introduced in Parliament tomorrow Pieces of legislation which over 70% of Australians would like to see implemented tomorrow. Pieces of legislation which our so-called parliamentary representatives have no wish. No wish of implementing. And they're very simple. One, a 1% stock market turnover tax. That would raise at least thirty billion dollars per year. One percent stock market turnover tax. Thirty billion. A one percent turnover tax for companies with a yearly turnover of more than two million dollars. Exclude small business and micro business. Turnover tax of every dollar you know, that they receive here, they pay a 1% tax. Simple. Not a goods and services tax, a turnover tax, which is paid by corporations and companies and individuals who have a yearly turnover of more than $2 million, $30 billion per year. A 1% financial services tax for every transaction above $50,000, excluding the family home. You could raise $40 billion per year. There's no GST and financial transactions in this country. None. And last at all, the most simple one, the removal of GST tax deductions for companies that have a yearly turnover greater than $5 million. That would raise $50 billion per year. How many Australians know most corporations and most businesses claim the gst as a tax deduction so i'm not saying remove the gst as a tax deduction for companies that have a that have a, a turnover greater than 5 million less than 5 million dollars which would include 90 to 95% of the 5 million small businesses in this country that are asked to compete against corporations that pay no tax or virtually no tax, who've got so much market share they can actually do loss leaders and uh, bankrupt their competition. And small businesses should be flocking to this program. See, most small businesses think their problems are because of their workers and the, you know the wages they pay their workers and overtime payments. The problem isn't that. The problem is the fact that you can't compete as a small business with a large corporation which legally pays no tax. How can you? Irrespective of government initiatives. So this is a simple reformist program, a very simple program which could overnight change the fortunes of millions of people in this country why should 24 million people living on a continent be denied the fruits of this continent because unaccountable corporations whose major responsibility is to their major shareholders to create ever-increasing profits irrespective of the human social environmental and national costs why should they be denied? Simple. So why stand the electorate of Dunkley? It's the it's the area where we have most PIPSI members, over a hundred. How can you help? Simple. Go to the website Toscano for Dunkley. T-O-S-C-A-N-O, the number four, Dunkley. D-U-N-K-L-E-Y. Have a look at the website. Make the 1%, pay the 1%. one percent. Why stand for the electorate? What you can do to help? And the list goes on and on and on and on. If you're on the internet, don't despair. Give us a call. 0439 489. We'll send you out the material. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20. Parkville 3052. We can send you the material. As I said before, simple ideas, simple issues. There is no reason... That one person should be homeless in a society where 24 million people, and I'll say it again, live on a continent. There should be no reason. There are fewer people on the Australian continent than there are in some large cities like Tokyo on the planet. And we seem to have all the same problems. But more importantly, nothing ever seems to change. As I said before and I hate to use a biblical analogy, we have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years since the dismissal, the illegal dismissal of the Whitlam Labor government. 40 years have the major political parties been beating the deregulation drum, which in plain English means if there are laws that have been put in place to protect the interests of ordinary people of workers of social security beneficiaries we remove those regulations if regulations have been put in place to protect the environment and somehow and somehow this you know affects corporate profitability we remove those those regulations so for 40 years, we have been walking in circles in the wilderness, removing regulations, making it easy for the corporate world to maximise their profits. And on every statistical indicator, the gap between those who are exploited, I don't use the haves and the have-nots, because there are those who exploit and those who have been exploited has increased. And it continues to increase every year. Then we've got privatisation. What's privatisation? Giving away at bargain basement prices assets which have been built up over decades through the taxes of Australians. And these public corporations were set up because the private sector historically in the 19th and 20th century was not able to provide those services, For example, the Commonwealth Bank was set up by the, one of the first Labor governments in the world in 1911 in this country so that ordinary people could actually get loans to buy a home, start a business. And the irony is not lost to many Australians that it was a Labor government which privatised the Commonwealth Bank in 1886. And what does privatisation do? It not only receive removes an income stream because if an organisation is publicly owned, the profit that is made by that organisation is ploughed back into public revenue. So not only did it remove an income stream, it also removed a government guarantee on banking deposits because while the bank was owned by the state, there was a government guarantee. And then, once the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, what actually happened is... The fees and charges levied by the banking cartels dramatically increased. You look at your bank statement and look at all the little fees. You know, 25% of the profits which are made by these clever banks come from fees and charges. So we've seen privatisation of almost everything which was created by the blood, sweat and tears of ordinary Australians to provide services to everyone, been removed. And the latest was the the privatisation of Medibank Private, which I know only about 40% of Australians are actually able to provide private health insurance, which is subsidised to the tune of $6 billion by the taxpayer. But the privatisation of Medibank Private has demonstrated to a number of people what happens. When Medibank Private was owned by the government, its major responsibility was to its members. Now that it's a private organisation, its members have been squeezed by the organisation to maximise profits for shareholders. So privatisation, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, privatising every date palm you find in the wilderness. And at the end of the 40 years, there's no more date palms. They're all privately owned and you've got to pay an arm and a leg to get access to a date. And I'm not talking about an internet date. Then you've got corporatisation. It's a big word, isn't it? And that's what I love about radical politics. We always use big words which nobody understands. And that's our Achilles heel. Corporatisation. C-O-R-P-O-R-A-T-I-S-A-T-I-O-N. Mouthful, isn't it? Corporatisation is very simple. It's when governments give away their sovereign rights to determine legislation for the people they represent in favour of unaccountable corporations whose major responsibility is to increase the profits of their major shareholders. And in plain English, what that basically means is that when you sign a free trade agreement... Of another country, although we jump up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down about illegal, you know, so-called illegal refugees landing on this country, and people have made their political fortunes thumping the table and continue to thump the table, you know, irrespective of what the Papua New Guinea Court's Supreme Court says regarding the illegality of the detention of Man- Manus Island, they keep thumping this table and they say, we will determine our We will protect our sovereign borders. Bingo, 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 bang, bang, bang. Well, at the other end of the corporatisation land, what governments do is they give up. They give up. Voluntarily give up their rights to protect their sovereign economic rights. So if a corporation, if a government decides to pass legislation to resolve problems which are faced by their citizens, right, their citizens, and that in, and that impinges on the profitability of that corporation. The taxpayer has to compensate the corporation. That's what corporatization is about. And globalization—that's when we allow foreign and locally owned corporations, not just foreign, co- but locally owned corporations to actually do what they like. Do what they like. Send their profits to Panama and the Cayman Islands, legally pay no tax. So we are now in a situation where in this country, real power doesn't lie in Parliament. It lies in the boardrooms of unaccountable corporations whose major responsibility is to their major shelves. But we can change this and we will change this if it's not this year it'll be next year and if it's not next year it'll be the year after because human history is about human beings collectively working together to change their future and remove the yokes of oppression from their necks and that's what human history is about you've been listening to the anarchist world this week broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, this Thursday, this Thursday, if you're in Melbourne, the uh, Toscano for Dunkley campaign will be outside the Centrelink office and Bruce Billson's office in Davie Street in Frankston from 11am to 1pm, so rock up, meet the people there, have a chat to them, get involved in the campaign. So it's this Thursday, eleven a.m. to one p.m. That's Thursday the twenty ninth. Now, was it the twenty eighth? No, twenty ninth. Tw- no, the twenty eighth. My apologies. No, twenty ninth. Twenty ninth. Don't even know my days. If you want to write to us, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. I had 57 letters to answer last week, so a lot of people don't use the internet. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can email us at Toscano4Dunkley. Info at Toscano4Dunkley. few interesting websites, anarchistmedia.org. Anarchistmedia.org. Download that May Day post to put it on your wall. You can... Um, Another interesting website, the Pipsy website, pipsy dot net, dot net. You can actually go to the Facebook page, public interest before corporate interest. Facebook page, Facebook page for Toscano dot for Dunkley. Become a friend. They tell me you can have friends, and I'm getting all these friends I never knew about, really vacuous f- virtual friends. So become a friend, like the page, make it viral. It's in your, you know, you don't have to march up and down the street. You can do it digitally. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist Will this week on your local community radio station. The Anarchist Will this week will be held next, will be broadcast next week via the Community Radio Network. Uh, this program emanates from 3CR in Melbourne. Thank you once again to all our listeners across the country in Tasmania, West Australia, Northern Territory, Victoria, uh, ACT, New South Wales, and Queensland. Listen in. To the anarchist world this week on your local community radio station next week of construction. an analysis you'll never hear anywhere else anarchist world this week australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse 10 a.m every wednesday Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Oh. Poisoning their brainwash minds. Oh, Lord, yeah. oh.